to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Luke, chapter 16, verse 3, as we follow along with today's lesson. So, found himself in a dilemma, fired from his job, because of dishonesty, didn't know what to do, but he struck upon an idea, I'll be even more dishonest. I know what I'll do. So that when I'm put out of my stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him. He said to the first, how much do you owe my Lord? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, here, quickly, take your bill and write 50. And he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So he called in all of the debtors and he cut their bills, 20% to 50%. The idea being that when he was out of a job next week, he could go to them and they would owe him a favor. If he asked them for some help, they would be obligated to give it because after all, he had just helped them tremendously cutting their bills in half. An extremely wicked, terrible thing to do. Dishonest to the core. But his master commended him because of his shrewdness. The master must have been sort of a rascal himself, and and he saw in this, this guy is shrewd. I mean, I can't believe how shrewd he is. He's done wisely. He hasn't done honestly. But he's, he's, he's taken his present position and used it to set him up for the future. Now that is wise. To take advantage of your present situation to set yourself up for the future. Not by dishonesty, but the concept of using the present position, the present advantage to seek to advantage yourself in the future is wise. So he had done wisely, for the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. The people of this world know, they're shrewd, they know how to take advantage of situations to set themselves up. So Jesus then said to his disciples, 
I say unto you, make to yourself friends by reason or by the use of mammon, the mammon of unrighteousness, that when you shall fail, they will receive you into everlasting habitations. Now, we all know that we're going to die. We all know that our time on this earth is limited. That one of these days, we're going to leave this earth. We know that eternity is waiting. And that when we leave this earth, we're going to enter into the eternal realm, the spiritual realm. What are you doing to prepare for the future? Are you taking advantage of the opportunities that you have now to set yourself up for eternity? That's basically what Jesus is saying to his disciples. Make use of this unrighteousness of mammon that you have. That when you fail, when you die, you will be received into the everlasting habitations. Money is probably the closest thing to omnipotence that we possess. Money is power. In fact, we say that mammon is the god of money, but in reality he was the god of power. But because money represents power, there is sort of that identifying of mammon with money. But he was the god of power, worshipped by the people as the god of power. Money is the closest thing to power that we possess. It's the power to possess things. It is the power to control things. And so often, a person who is driven to gain more money is driven by the lust for power. He wants to control others. He wants others to have to bow and scrape to him, and, and thus he's driven by this desire for power to get more money. It is one of the closest things we have to omnipotence, but it is also one of the closest things that we have to impotence because money can make you a slave. It can get to the place where you can't spend it. You try to hold on to everything and you no longer enjoy it. It's just gaining more is, is the obsession of your life. Years ago here in the church, when we were looking to buy some property, a very wealthy man loaned us the money that we needed interest-free. He loaned it to us for two years interest-free. Free. This man kept a hundred million dollars in liquid assets in case a good buy should come along. Just how much he was worth, I don't know. But he owned many, many different shopping centers, apartment complexes. I don't know if he knew how much he was worth. But he worked. 14 hours a day, seven days a week, trying to get more money. 
He had more than he could possibly ever spend. He finally died of a heart attack, overwork. He spent half of his time in courts being sued or suing. Because whenever a person has that much money, everybody is looking for a free ride, so they want to sue them for anything they can. And of course, a person that is out for money looks to where he can sue people. His wife is listed as one of the five wealthiest women in the world. This man, as I said, loaned the church some money when we were in a place where we needed to borrow it. He could have easily, easily, without even knowing that it was gone, given the money, but no, he loaned it, which we appreciate. I mean, I don't fault him for that. It was good that he, he helped us out and God used him to help us out. But his life is a good example of a person who has become a slave to his money. And money can make you impotent. It can sap you. It can make you a slave. As I said, to where you can't spend it, you can't enjoy it. Now Jesus is telling us to use our money for things that will last for eternity. You can use your money to buy things that will wear out, lose their luster, become old and rusty and decayed. Or you can use your money to gain eternal benefits. Jesus said, don't lay up for yourself treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and decay, where thieves can break through and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. How do we lay up our, for ourselves treasures in heaven? By the investing in things that are eternal. Paul the Apostle wrote to the church at Philippi who had sent Paul an offering. And Paul thanked them for the offering that they had sent to him. And he said, not because I needed it. I was glad to receive the offering, not because I needed it, but I desire that fruit might abound to your account. So Paul was declaring to them that the fruit of his ministry was abounding to their account because of their support of his ministry. That is why so often when I see a young man that really has potential doing a work for God, I like to support them. Selfishly, I want fruit to abound in my account. <laughs> and, and it's been a blessing to be able to give many times to those that God is really using, ministries that are really being used of God. So Jesus is basically saying, you have the opportunity now to invest in things that are eternal. That opportunity is not always going to be here. The moment you die, you will lose total control over your riches.
The moment you die, your riches will be controlled by others. This is the thing that bugged Solomon. He became the richest man in the world, but then he started worrying. He thought, when I die, all of these riches, this foolish son of mine, he doesn't know how to handle money. He'll go through it, you know. And why did I save? Why did I sacrifice? Why did I do I have to get all this money just to give it to that dumb kid, you know? I mean, it really bugged him. It really troubled him that, you know, he's going to lose control. But it happens. You can't avoid it. But Jesus is saying, take advantage. Now, the, the people of the world know enough. They have enough wisdom to take advantage of the present position that they have to set themselves up for the future. Therefore, you ought also to take advantage of the present opportunity to invest in things that are eternal. For he that is faithful in that which is least, and again, as I said this morning, it isn't the amount of money, but money is the least of things. The, the real riches are spiritual riches. The real riches are in heaven. They are eternal. Investing in things that are eternal is not dumb. It's wise. Because you're going to spend most of your time in eternity. The time you spend here on earth is just a drop, not even a drop in a bucket. Not even a drop in an ocean. And yet there are people who are taking no thought of eternity of all, have laid up nothing for eternity, squandered everything on themselves. So Jesus is encouraging his disciples to invest in those things that are eternal. When the, we'll get it two weeks in the 18th chapter. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and asked him what he had to do to gain this eternal life, Jesus said, well, you know the commandments, and he keep them. And he said, well, which ones? And Jesus quoted the commandments that related to his uh, relationship with his brothers. And he said, I've done all of this from the time I was a child, but what do I lack yet? And Jesus said, well, if you be perfect, go out and sell everything you have, distribute it to the poor, and then come and follow me, and you'll have great treasure in heaven. And he went away sad because he was very rich. And Jesus turned to his disciples and said, Ooh, how hard it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Easier really for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter said, Well, Lord, who then is going to be saved? And Jesus said, Well, with man it's impossible, but with God all things are possible. And Peter said, Well, Lord, we've left all to follow you. And Jesus said, No man has left houses or homes, families, brothers, sisters, for my sake in the kingdom, but in this world will receive again a hundredfold, and in the world to come, life everlasting. God will not be your debtor. You cannot outgive God. We have scores of applications coming to us of people who are in need of funds. 
And the church does have a benevolent fund by which we seek to help people who are in dire emergencies. Of course, the funds are limited, and thus we have to be careful how we expend them. And we do seek to help those that are in the family, those that are in the church. I mean, we're not Orange County Welfare. The county's bankrupt, and if the welfare program bankrupted the county, I mean, who are we to send? And, and so, but we do want to take care of the church and those within the church, those that are active here. One of the questions that are on the form that the people fill out besides listing their needs, is, do you tithe? Will we find a record of your tithing? And you know what is always there? I always give just cash. It is extremely rare, extremely rare, maybe only one in a hundred who have come for help have a tithing record. I think that says something. In Malachi, it says, will a man rob God? You say, where have we robbed God? Well, God said, in your tithes and in your offerings. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord, and see if I will not pour out unto you a blessing that you cannot contain. There's only one place where God said to prove him, and that's in Giving. Haggai spoke about the people. He said, you have holes in your pockets. You can't keep your money. And he said, why? Because you've let the house of God go desolate while you've fixed up and remodeled your own homes and so forth. In other words, they were putting their investments in the things that were going to perish rather than things that were eternal. And thus, many of them found themselves destitute. God will not be a debtor to you. If you give to God, God, as Jesus said, no man, Lord, we've left all to follow you. Jesus said, no, no, you're not my, I'm not in debt to you. No man has left houses and home and all, but what he won't receive in this life hundredfold and in the world to come, life eternal. So the whole idea is using the advantage of what we have now to Lay up for ourselves eternal treasure. For he that is faithful in that which is least, these things that we deal with of the material world, is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least will also be unjust in much. If, therefore, you have not been faithful in the unrighteousness of mammon, the money that God has entrusted to you, who is going to entrust to you the true riches? It is interesting that in the parable of the Lord who gave to his one servant five talents to another four and another one, how the one that was given five came back and said, Lord, I used your five and I've gained another five. Here is ten. And the Lord said, well done, good and faithful servant. Because you have been faithful in the little things, I'll make, now make you ruler over big things. 
enter into the joy of the Lord. But the one who received the one talent said, Lord, I know that you're really shrewd, tough, austere. You want your money's worth, and therefore I hid your money in a napkin and buried it, and now I've dug it up, and here it is. I, you, your talent is intact. And Jesus said, well, you've judged yourself. You know that I want dividends from my investments. You should have at least put it in the bank where I could have had interest when I came. And he said, take away the talent that he has. Give it to him that has the ten. For unto whom much is uh, given, or those who are faithful will be given more. So Jesus is saying pretty much the same thing here. If, if he can't trust you with the little things, how can he ever trust you with the eternal things? If you're not faithful in the use of your money now, then how is he or why should he invest in you the true riches? If you have not been faithful in that which is another man's, you see, what you have has been entrusted to you by God. What do you have but what you have received? Then who will give to you that which is your own? And then he said, no man can serve two masters. You either will hate the one and love the other, or else you'll hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There are the, the God mammon. You can't serve them both. You can't. Uh, you're going to hate the one and love the other. You're going to be drawn to the one and, and turn away from the other, or vice versa. You cannot serve God and mammon. So... Serious. So, now, the Pharisees, it says, verse 14, who loved money, covetous, and, and in the Greek, who loved money, heard all of these things, and they derided him. Uh, literally, in the Greek, they turned up their noses. Nah. They didn't like what he was saying. They derided him because they loved money. So Jesus turned to them, and he said unto them, You are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. They were the ones who were outwardly religious. They had the outward garments of religion. Outwardly, they looked very pious, very sanctimonious. But Jesus said, God knows your heart. In another place, Jesus called them whitewashed sepulchers. You look all white and gleaming on the outside, but inside, he said, you're stinking with dead men's bones. You're the ones that make the outside of the platter clean or the cup clean, but inside there's all kinds of filth. And Jesus is saying, God knows what's going on in your heart. You justify yourselves before men. You want to look good before men, but God knows what's going on in your heart. And that which is highly esteemed among men 
And, and to them, they highly esteemed the rich. They really looked up to the rich and they felt that riches were a sign of righteousness. God's grace upon their life. Look how God's grace is upon me, all of these riches. And highly esteemed. He said, but that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. God sees your hearts. Men may esteem you highly, but you're an abomination to God. And Jesus said, the law and the prophets were until John. Until the coming of John the Baptist, they were under this covenant with God to keep his law. And if they would keep his law, he would be their God and they would be his people. And the law was in force up until John the Baptist. But since that time, the kingdom of God or the kingship of God is preached. That is the submitting of your life to God as king. And every man presseth into it. And then he said, it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one little marking of the law to fail. The little commas or marks that would distinguish the vowels. Easier for heaven and earth to pass away than the law to fail. And then he took one of the laws and he showed them how that here they were outwardly looking so righteous and holy as though, you know, we're perfect. But he began to show them how that this one particular law, how they had so misinterpreted and abused it. And it was the law concerning divorce. Now, under the law in Deuteronomy, if a man married a woman and found some uncleanness in her, he should give to her a writing of divorcement that she might be freed from him. And so he said, Whosoever puts away his wife and marries another commits adultery, Whosoever marries her that is put away from her husband commits adultery. Now, what they were saying is that you could put away your wife and their interpretation was of uncleanness was very liberal. The, there were two schools of thought. Shimei, one of the rabbis, said uncleanness is adultery. And adultery is then the Biblical grounds for divorce, only biblical grounds for divorce. But there was another school under a rabbi by the name of Hillel. And Hillel says uncleanness is many things. Or it could be many things. If she puts too much salt in your broth, that's cause for divorce. You found an uncleanness in her. She oversalts the food. One rabbi by the name of Akaba said, if you have found a prettier woman, then that's, you know, you, you, you're looking now with sort of disdain at her, and so that's an uncleanness. And guess which school prevailed? 
the school of Hillel. And so at, at this time, the, the, the interpretation by Hillel was the prevailing thought of the, of the people, and, and thus there was a real breakdown of the family because uh, a, a woman could only uh, divorce her husband if he became a leper or if he ravished, uh, raped a virgin. But the man could put away his wife for any number and find an uncleanness, and by Hillel's interpretation, that could be just about anything. So Jesus is, is talking to them, look, outwardly you're appearing righteous before men, you're putting on all the robes and everything else, but inwardly God sees your heart, and you may be esteemed by men, but you're an abomination to God. And you are living, you say, by the law. But here's an issue. Your interpretation of this particular law of divorce is wrong. Now he gives a parable, and it is probably addressed to everyone at this point. And again, the parable, interestingly enough, is concerning a certain rich man. Now this started out uh, the chapter with a parable of a certain rich man. And now again, he speaks of a certain rich man. There is a question as to whether or not this is a parable because there is an unusual aspect to this story, and that is that a man is named. And in none of the parables were there ever names attached to the individuals. So the fact that one of the men is named has led to the conclusion that this is an actual story that Jesus is talking about, an actual situation, not a parable. But if it is a parable, parables are stories to illustrate divine truths. So that if it is a parable, there is divine truth that is being taught in it. So either way, whether it be a story or a parable, makes no difference. What we need to discover is the truth that is being illustrated and taught in the story. A certain rich man, which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and fared sumptuously every day. I mean, you've got the picture now here of a guy just, you know, well, they, they, like in the movies, these decadent uh, Roman emperors, you know, that uh, are, are just fat and lounging and gourmets and, you know, just uh, the, the picture of opulence, uh, of... of uh, Disgusting opulence. <laughs> Contrasted with him, there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, and hear the name given, which was laid at his gate full of sores. You'd have to go over to the Middle East to understand this. There are people today, you go out the Damascus Gate, out St. Stephen's Gate, you'll often see people sitting there seeking alms, and they'll have 
their pant legs way up, and you'll see these open sores all, all over their legs, and their legs swollen and open bloody sores, and they're, they're ugly to look at. And so where you have on the one side a picture of uh, this elegance and opulence and you know decadence, on the other side you have this poor beggar covered with sores. Desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Now, uh, the wealthy people, of course, all of the people, when they ate, they, they did not have silverware. Uh, they ate with their hands. And the wealthy people, when they were thrilled with a meal, would take bread and wipe the grease and all off of their hands with the bread, and then they would toss the bread to the poor people around. And so he was just waiting there to catch a piece of bread from the rich man's table. And to make it just a little bit more, the dogs came and licked his sores. Uh, the dogs were kind, more kindly disposed to this man than the rich man. He probably wasn't even aware of him. But it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Notice there's no mention of his being buried. When the poor people died, they would quite often just take them down to the valley of Hinnom and throw them in the fires that were constantly burning down there, cremate them. Uh, and uh, so no mention of his burial. He was probably just picked up by the street sweepers and, and carried on down to the valley of Hinnom, and thrown in the fires. But the angels carried him. To, you see, death wasn't the end. And, and that's we had in the last story, too. Death wasn't the end. The rich man also died and was buried. One wonders how much his funeral cost. But in hell, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Now, the Old Testament word for hell is Sheol, the New Testament word is Hades. There is another Greek word also translated hell, which is Gehenna. And then there is another word, abuso. And abuso means pit, and it is called in interpretation the bottomless pit. Prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of those who died, according to the scripture, went to Sheol or to Hades. But from this story that Jesus is giving to them, we discover that Hades is divided into two compartments prior to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the one compartment of Hades, there is torment. In the other compartment of Hades, 
There is comfort in Abraham's bosom. When Jesus died, his soul went into Hades. In Acts, the second chapter, as Peter was preaching to those who had gathered on the day of Pentecost to observe the phenomena, as he was preaching to them of the death of Jesus and of his resurrection, as he brought up the resurrection of Jesus, he said it was impossible that he could be held by death because God had promised that he would not leave his soul in hell, neither would he allow the Holy One to see corruption. And so he bore witness to them that God did not leave the soul of Jesus in hell, but this same Jesus hath he raised from the dead. Paul the Apostle in Ephesians 4 said, He who has ascended, Jesus, is the first of, first of all, is the one who descended, or first of all, descended into the lower parts of the earth. But when he ascended, he led the captives from their captivity. Peter tells us in his epistle that he went and he preached to the souls in prison in the prophecy concerning Jesus in Isaiah 61. It was he was to loose the prison doors to those that were bound and set the captives free. Abraham was the father of those who believed. He believed in Jesus. It said, these all died in faith, Abraham and the other patriarchs. They didn't receive the promise, but they saw it afar off. And they just claimed that they were strangers and pilgrims here, and they were searching for a city the eternal city of God, which has foundation, whose maker and builder is God. Now he said, these all died in faith, not having received the promise God, reserving some better thing for us that they, apart from us, couldn't come into the perfected state. It would appear that Abraham, the father of those who believe, in one portion of Hades, was encouraging and comforting those who entered in to the grave, into Hades. And no doubt saying, God is faithful. He'll keep, I waited a long time for Isaac, but God kept his word. God's faithful. He's going to get us out of here. Comforting those. The other side was a place of torment. And so the rich man was buried and in hell... He lifted up his eyes, being in torments, and seeing Abraham afar off, Lazarus in his bosom, he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus. So he evidently recognized him, knew who he was, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame, place of torment. 
But Abraham said, son, remember. He did remember. He could remember his life on earth. Now, the Bible teaches that the real you is not the body. The real you is spirit. The body is an instrument through which your spirit expresses itself. You sort of live in your body. The Bible calls this body a tent. It's a place where you live. The Bible tells us that one day we'll move out of our tents and hopefully if you're a child of God, you will move into a building of God that's not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Jesus said, in my Father's house are many mansions I'm going to prepare one for you, the building of God, not made with hands, eternal in the heavens, a new body God has prepared for you. But the real you isn't the body. This man's body was lying in some ornate, elegant tomb, but his soul was in hell. The consciousness was still there. And he lifted up his eyes, saw Abraham, saw Lazarus there in his bosom, cried for relief from the torment and the heat. Son, remember that you in your lifetime received the good things, and likewise Lazarus, evil things. But now he's comforted while you're tormented. And beside this, between us and you, there is a great gulf that is fixed so that they which would pass from here to you cannot do it, and neither can they pass to us that would come from there. In other words, hell was divided into these two Compartments and there could be no crossing. There's no repentance after death. There's no change that can take place after death. As the tree falleth, so shall it lie. You can't change once you've passed into the other world. And he said, Then I pray you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And so he could remember his family, his brothers that were still alive, probably living just prolific lives like he was. Let him go back and warn them so that they won't come to this place. Of torment. Abraham said, They have Moses and they have the prophets. Let them hear them. Peter tells us that God has given to us all that pertains to life and godliness in His Word. You don't need any more than what God has already given you. Now, here this fellow is arguing, Lord, let him go back. Let him go back and warn my brothers. Abraham said, Look, they have the law and the prophets. Let him listen to them. And he said, no, no, Father Abraham. If one of them went from the dead, then they will repent. 
It is interesting, Jesus talking to the Pharisees here, that we do have a story that happened just a little after this of a man, interestingly enough, by the name of Lazarus, who was dying. He was a friend of Jesus. And his sisters, who Jesus also loved, sent a message to Jesus who was down at the Jordan River and it said, come quickly, the one you love is dying. And for unexplained reasons, Jesus hung around the Jordan River for a couple of days before he began the two-day journey to Bethany where his friend Lazarus lived. By the time he arrived at Bethany, his friend had already died And over there, even to the present day, they bury the person the day they die. They don't embalm them and put them in the, you know, in the seeing room and all. They they bury people the day they die. So he had been buried for four days by the time Jesus arrived. The sisters were in the house and their friends were gathering and they were weeping and they were mourning over the loss of their brother. And this mourning often took place for 30 days. Someone said, Jesus is coming up the road with his disciples. So Martha went running out, running down the road towards Jericho, where she met Jesus and said, Lord, if you had only have been here, my brother would not have died. Jesus said, well, your brother's going to live again. Oh, yes, Lord, I know on the last day, the great resurrection. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And he that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. If you live and believe in me, you'll never die. Martha, do you believe this? You see, that statement immediately divides people into two categories, those who believe and those who don't. Martha, do you believe? She said, yes, Lord, I believe. But the question is to you, do you believe that? You see, it divides people into two categories, those who believe that and those who don't, those who have a hope of eternal life and those who have no hope of eternal life. When Jesus came to the house, Mary said the same thing, oh, Lord, you're too late. If you'd only been here, a brother would not have died. Jesus said, well, take me to where you've buried him. So they led Jesus out to the cave where he was buried. And he said, roll the stone away from the cave. And Martha said, Lord, it's been four days. He stinks pretty bad by now. And as they rolled the stone away, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. I agree with the person that said, the reason why he said, Lazarus, come forth, had he just said, come forth, the whole graveyard would have emptied. And Lazarus came hopping out, still in his (laughs) grave clothes, and Jesus said, loose him, set him free. The Pharisees that Jesus is talking to here, when they heard of Lazarus being raised from the dead, what did they say? Let's kill him. Here's the argument. Lord, if someone would just come back from the dead, you know, and testify, then they would believe. Abraham said, no, 
If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe even though one should come back from the dead. And so it was. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, the Pharisees plotted to kill him too. It didn't make believers out of them. It made murderers out of them. Because they don't want to believe because it will mean a change of lifestyles which they do not want. And so we have some real heavy teaching here in the 16th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, teaching that should cause each of us to sort of look inwardly and say, what am I doing with what God has entrusted into my care? Am I using it wisely? Am I using it for the kingdom of God or for the kingdom of Chuck, the kingdom of myself? One day, accounting will be given. You can't escape it. Beginning probably with the 14th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we have what might be titled A Day in the Life of Jesus. The day begins with an invitation by a Pharisee for Jesus to come and dine at his house. It was a Sabbath day. It was a setup. They had a sick man there, a man who was plagued with a deadly malady. And they'd invited Jesus to see if he would violate their traditional keeping of the Sabbath by healing that man, which, of course, to them was a violation. Jesus did heal the man, and then he challenged the other guests who had been invited by the way they looked for the better seats in the house. Then he challenged the man who invited him because of the guest list. As Jesus left the house which was a place of hostility because they began to challenge Jesus. The multitudes waiting outside began to follow him, but the Pharisees weren't ready to yet let him go. He began to address the multitudes, but there were constant challenges by the Pharisees that were in the crowd. And so this interchange goes on to chapter 17 and to the 10th verse. So we are still on this same Sabbath day, following Jesus as he is being followed by the disciples and those people who were interested in what he had to say and also by the Pharisees who, run, who were wanting to challenge everything that he said. And so we find him addressing himself sometimes to the Pharisees and other times to the disciples. And as we catch up with them here in chapter 17, he is again addressing himself to the disciples and he speaks to them about four different issues that seem to be rather unconnected and yet there is a unity in the whole message. So Jesus said to his disciples, 
It is impossible, but that offenses will come. You can't escape offenses. It's impossible. Uh, Paul said, uh, if I please all men, if I seek to please all men, then I will not be a servant of Christ. You can say some things that will make a part of the group extremely happy, but you'll have the other part of the group ready to take up stones and to stone you. They will be offended because of what you said. It's impossible to escape offenses. But what Jesus is talking about here is those who would say offensive things against him. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Luke in our next broadcast as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on offenses and stumbling blocks. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Luke 16 through 17 when visiting thewordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of the Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, again, as we have had the opportunity of looking into your word. Now may your Holy Spirit plant it in our hearts. And Lord, may it be like a seed that will begin to grow and to bring forth fruit in our lives. May it fall on good, fertile soil. May the enemy not choke it out, but Lord, let it bring forth fruit. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Lord, I believe in you. I'll always believe in you. It is by faith that you've been walking into one level of spiritual maturity to another. Faith is the key to a successful Christian life. That is why the Word of God tells us, without faith, it's impossible to please God. It was faith that led Abraham into the land of promise. It was faith that led the children of Israel through the Red Sea. 
It was faith that enabled Peter to step out of the boat and to walk on water. The question is, what might faith do in you? To order a copy of Pastor Chuck's book, Faith, or to preview a chapter for free online, visit thewordfortoday.org or call 800-272-9673.